evening. This evening's reading is taken from Mark chapter 9, and I'll be reading from verse 2 through to verse 37. And that can be found on pages 1012 through to 1013 in your church Bibles. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came down from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, 
because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Thank you, Vicky. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage we have before us this evening. And we just pray that you, Holy Spirit, will work within our hearts, within our minds, as we think and meditate on your word tonight. And pray that my voice holds out too. Amen. <coughs> well, one thing I know about KO and sixth form students that Stephen and Peter don't know is that they are all dead keen on mid-Renaissance art from Italy. So, there we go. Just for you. Uh, you even get a souvenir in your programme to take away. If you can't see it, it's, it's in, in there. Uh, as well. Now, this is a picture by an artist called Raphael, not a, not a turtle, but a, a person, uh, painted it around 1520. Um, and people say this is a kind of high point of Renaissance art, and it was the most brilliant picture that Raphael ever painted. And you may or may not agree with that as we uh, look at it, but it's going to help us as we just think through this passage uh, from Mark 9, uh, focusing on the first or 29, 30 verses or so. Um, and this picture is not surprisingly called the Transfiguration. Um, we can zoom in on, on, on that bit, can't we? And the Transfiguration is that first section of our reading tonight, verses 2 to 8. And it's kind of the big reveal of the gospel. Peter has just declared that Jesus uh, is the Messiah, that this is the moment when Jesus suddenly gives this select group just a glimpse of who he really was. And that's what this picture shows us. It's up a, a, a rather pathetic little mountain, but it is a mountain. Uh, he's surrounded by cloud. He's, he's bathed in the glory, the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory uh, of Exodus 40. Uh, God speaks uh, in the cloud. Uh, and Peter would later reflect on this. And he said, we saw his majesty. Um, now... I do think Jesus looks a bit like a floating Teletubby. I hope that's not so sacrilegious, but never mind. You know, we, we, we get the idea. And the two characters floating alongside him are, are, are Elijah uh, and Moses. Elijah, the great prophet, the forerunner uh, of John the Baptist, 
there perhaps to, to remind us that Jesus comes as part of God's eternal plan, that God, that God foreknew uh, Jesus. And then you've got the other side, we've got Moses, uh, the lawgiver, uh, and that seems to be a reminder uh, of Jesus uh, meeting all the requirements of God's law, living that, that perfect life. <clears throat> Uh, so that's the sort of the core story, isn't it, of the transfiguration down the bottom, Peter, James and John all looking a bit confused and, and thinking about building tents and shelters and what have you. Um, and there's a couple of spare saints thrown in because this is 1520 and they did that sort of stuff. So uh, a couple of random saints uh, chucked in. Well, that's all fine and dandy and you might or might not think that's a great painting. But why is it so famous? If you were to Google Raphael's greatest paintings, this one will come up every time. Why is it so famous? And there are people who will be able to explain much better to you uh, about the wonderful artwork. But the, 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 the dramatic thing about this picture is that Raphael was the first person to take the transfiguration and relate it to you and me. If you look at early pictures of the transfiguration and mosaic, you get this wonderful picture, a bit like this, of, uh, of Jesus in all his glory. But Raphael took us further step. And he said, well, what does that mean for you and for me? It was quite a sort of subversive thing to do. Uh, you get a little clue in this picture. You could, can't really see it, perhaps. But on the right-hand side, there's a little bit of landscape. There's a, there's a town in the background. And the... Um, that, that town, normally you'd have a little scene of the Holy Family or something like that going on. But Raphael just painted an ordinary, peaceful town. So he's been telling us that this event, this transfiguration event, means something. But where he really put the point home was what he did at the bottom of the picture. And you shouldn't really divide it up, because Raphael didn't, but it helps us to, to, to see the whole thing. Because while Jesus' true nature is being revealed on the mountaintop, at the same time, in the valley below, everything was chaos uh, and confusion. Real life was going on down below, in the valley. And if we want to know what that looks like, look at verses 14 to 29. As you skim through it, you can see that it's a life marked by uh, hostility, uh, a difference. It's a world marked by suffering, of evil, there's doubt, and there's failure. It's like a sort of dreadful bake-off recipe, isn't it? It's a pretty depressing list of topics. But that is the reality of those verses. And in those themes, I guess we will all recognize aspects of our own experience, aspects of our own lives, even now. And they're all painted there for us to see. And we'll pick up a few in a minute as we go through. But of course, it poses a huge question. Raphael's asking us a big question, isn't he? He's saying, well, there is Jesus up on the mountaintop in all his glory, powerful, this God of love. But down at his feet, there's always suffering and all this mess. 
Why doesn't he hear our prayers? Why doesn't he end that suffering? And it's easy to read this passage and kind of get the impression that you've got to do something about this particular problem. Jesus says in verse 19, doesn't he? We are an unbelieving generation. The problem is that we don't believe. And again in verse 23, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I can go away from that thinking, well, I've just got to believe more. I just trust a bit more. It's like wishing on a star so my dreams will come true. I've just got to work up a bit more faith. I've just got to believe more. And then surely God will intervene. But is that true? Is that right? Is it our problem? Do we need to believe more, trust more, to see God act? Well, this is a passage that doesn't duck that question at all, does it? And the first thing I think it doesn't duck at all is the degree of suffering that's involved here. Um, these folk are, are in real need. Um, this, this unnamed man in verse 17, um, there they are, right in the middle of the picture. The man's in green. You can see him there slightly, to, not the middle, is it? Slightly to the right. Um, and he's holding his ladder. The lad can't, is, is obviously suffering. He's having to, uh, to support him. And we know from both Gospels that the boy was both ill and demon-possessed or oppressed. He was unable to speak. The demon throws him into fits, throws him into the fire, tries to kill him. Verse 21, he says, this has been going on since childhood. Luke's gospel tells us that this is the man's only son. So I guess that implies uh, that mum died young. Otherwise, there would be more children, I guess. So what a situation for this dad. It couldn't be more hopeless. No hope. No comfort in family life, no future, just a hopeless life of worry. Scripture is quite clear that this is, this is a demonic issue. This isn't just sickness. And as a little aside, um, this is what demons do. Demons destroy our joy. They delight in causing pain, they delight in mental turmoil, turmoil, they are fiercely opposed to a God of love. Utterly bonkers, isn't it, to be celebrating evil over Halloween when we see what's been going on in Gaza and Israel. Absolutely mad. We must never forget but we are in a spiritual fight. We're in a fight against the cosmic powers of darkness, is how Paul describes it in Ephesians. The Bible takes demons seriously, Jesus takes them seriously, and so should we. But what happens here? Well, verse 18, uh, the man goes to the disciples for help, uh, and what happens? They fall flat on their face. 
If you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus has given them authority to heal, to cast out demons. Uh, They've done it before. Uh, The Father had every right to look to these guys uh, for help. But they can't do it. And what happens then? Well, it's what happens when any of us slip up as Christians, when we, when we make mistakes, when we fail, is the opposition has a field day, doesn't it? Verse 14, Jesus says, what are you arguing about? People are having a go. They're saying, you're out of your depth. You don't know what you're doing. You're doing more harm than good. Or you're just frauds. Things couldn't get much worse, could they, really? The suffering continues. Uh, The onlookers are are, are trashing Jesus. And his followers are just ending up confused. Verse 28, they say, why? Why couldn't we handle this? You've got the disciples on the left-hand side of that picture. Um, One of them, I think, is Matthew. Seems to be sort of looking things up in a book, so trying to work out what the answer would be. Uh, But you've got the nine disciples, the other three still on the mountain, the nine down there, all at six and sevens, arguing, not quite sure uh, what to do. And isn't that our experience? This is a picture uh, of Christian followers. We long to live out powerful lives of, of, of Christian witness. We, we perhaps long to be uh, another James Hannington, perhaps without the spears, but you know, we, we want to be uh, these fantastic characters. We, we pray and we want to see our prayers dramatically answered. But we find ourselves often in that group of disciples, don't we? Puzzled uh, and confused. Now, this is perhaps a, a bit of a gloomy picture. Um, let's uh, go a bit bigger. Um, and uh, I mean the actual picture, not the story. It is a gloomy picture. But where is the light? Can you see the light is focused on the Lord Jesus and then it runs down to, through the center of the picture and it sort of focuses on this lady in pink down the bottom. There we are. Let's go back to her. There she is. This lady in pink. And the experts say she represents faith. That's why she's bathed in light. The light that surrounds Jesus and connects to the Father that the, even the Son is stretching out to. Is stretching out in faith. And, of course, that takes us to these fantastic words, uh, these verses in uh, verse 24. I think one of my favorite verses in in Scripture. Uh, The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You might have slightly different versions of that. The one I had was simply, uh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Whichever way it's cut, uh, we know what's going on there, don't we? In Matthew's Gospel, uh, slightly ironically perhaps, uh, the man says to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. You know, Jesus has just said that, that we're an unbelieving generation. He's just said anything is possible for someone who believes. And yet here is a man who says, well, I do believe, but also I don't believe. 
And Jesus doesn't say, well, I've just told you, you're an unbelieving generation, does he? What Jesus does is respond. And I just love this man. If anybody ever tells you uh, the Bible is made up or it's a fairy story and all that sort of stuff, just point them to the gritty honesty uh, of this passage. You know, I often go back to this phrase, we all struggle. But here is a man expressing so many of our own thoughts. We, we seem to have a bit of a J.C. Ryle fan club going in this church, so I apologize, I'm a bit more J.C. Ryle now. Um, but uh, this is what he said, commenting on this passage. Great uh, uh, um, evangelical bishop of the 19th century. He says, we see in these words <clears throat> a vivid picture of the heart of many a true Christian. Few indeed are to be found among believers in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in a child of God as long as they are in the body. Um, there's an American theologian, Frederick Buchner. Uh, he was a bit pithier in his comment on this. He said, <clears throat> doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. So if, like me, you've got ants in the pants, uh, take heart. Because the fact is, when we follow the Lord Jesus, we will doubt. If you've turned to him recently, don't panic when doubts set in when you wonder if it's all true, if you wonder whether God really does live you, love you, whether you really can be forgiven. You know, it's quite interesting. Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, John's Gospel. You look at the last chapter of those three. Every single one makes reference to doubt in one way or another and recognize the existence of doubts in their readers. Now, those of you who are real theologians will know the letter of James and the letter of James who, who's quite striped about condemning those who doubt. It says people who doubt uh, are like waves on the seafront here, here being sort of tossed around. Uh, but, you know, there's a huge difference between the person who is tossed around like a wave on the seafront, uh, the one who thinks one thing one day and then changes her mind and goes off in another direction the next. Huge difference between that and what's happening here. A man who knows there is only one answer who can help, the Lord Jesus. It's tentative faith, it's desperate, and it's relying not so much on how much faith we can work out, but it's a faith that relies always on the merciful character of the God who hears us. And that is the point, isn't it? That is the point. We keep going back to the character of God. It's not a matter of whipping up faith. It's not a matter of praying and praying and praying and praying until God gives us what we want. Paul, 2 Corinthians, prays desperately. He says, I've repeatedly prayed to be healed, but it's not to be. We're buoyed up when God acts miraculously, and he does act miraculously. He does intervene. He does heal. Sometimes we're left perplexed, like these disciples asking, why not? And I think that's why the passage ends on verse 29 with this slightly enigmatic comment of Jesus when he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Because in prayer, in earnest, sincere prayer, 
We're doing as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, aren't we? We are throwing ourselves on God's mercy. We're praying not for our own comfort, but for God's will to be done. One writer wrote, healings demand faith, but faith cannot demand healing. So how do we cope in a messed up world where we ourselves mess up so often? Well, we continue to trust and have faith in a loving God who cares for us and wants the best for us. And the problem with that argument is you say, well, Scooby-Doo, really? I mean, that's all lovely, isn't it? It doesn't really prove anything. It's just a comfort blanket to get you through life. Raphael painted this picture. Uh, He was only 37, uh, but he painted it as he was dying. He um, was ill for a, a, a few weeks. And you just wondered, you just wonder whether at that time he wanted to hang on to a particularly important truth. Because this truth says not only that Jesus is involved, but he has done something about our situation. First, two to eight, we saw the transfiguration. The top of the picture, we see Jesus uh, transformed. Jesus intimately connected with his father. He's outside time. He's the perfect person. And then here, in the center of the gospel of Mark, this sort of hinge chapter, the whole of the gospel is spelt out. The whole of the gospel is acted out in these short few verses, in these verses 14 to 29. Because what happens is that Jesus leaves his glory and he comes down into the chaos of our life. And he faces hostility and he faces indifference, but he comes to those who will trust him however weakly that is, maybe with more unbelief than faith. And he shows them that everything is possible. And he does that by confronting evil head on. You know, this is an unusual passage in Scripture because when Jesus arrives, the devil's winning. The disciples have failed. Evil has prevailed. And Jesus comes into that battle and there's a violent confrontation. Verse 26, that battle with the devil seems to end in death. The boy lies like a corpse. Death has won. God has lost. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted into his feet, and he stood up. Jesus defeats death, raises the boy to life, to the life he should always have enjoyed, and restores him to the right relationship with his father. That is the message of the gospel. It's the good news for our times. A loving God comes into our world and defeats death in the greatest battle of all, on the cross of Calvary. That is a work of a God who loves us and died for us, dies for us and restores us even when we can only say in our antsy pants, 
Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief.